Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Judge Me by My Cover. Today, we are extremely honored to have Professor Andrew Scott join us. Andrew is the professor of economics at the London Business School, having previously held positions at Harvard, London School of Economics, and Oxford. He has published widely in leading international academic journals, and his book, The Hundred Year Life, is an international bestseller. Having been published in fourteen different languages, and received several awards, he has also advised a range of governments, including serving as the non-executive director for the UK's Financial Services Authority, and he's currently on the advisory board of the UK's Office of for Budget Responsibility, a member of the Cabinet Office Honours Committee, and the co-founder of the Longevity Forum. So, thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. I am,、um, like I mentioned, starstruck.、Um, for the listeners who have not read the book "A Hundred Year Life," I urge you to go to Amazon and get it now.、Um, so this book is centered around the idea of a multi-purpose life. So for those who have not read it, can you tell us a little bit more about that and how did that idea came about? Yeah, so、uh, let me begin why sort of why I, I wrote the book, and there's obviously a number of reasons for it. But、uh, as an economist, I teach a course here at London Business School about future trends, and for years I've talked about an aging society. And I don't know if you've heard the story, but it's a pretty miserable one. It basically says every country is getting old, and we can't afford to get old. There's going to be all these old people around, and it's pretty miserable. And every year I gave it, I was increasingly unhappy with the、um, uh, that narrative because I was confused. Because you know, the key fact is that, on average, as individuals, we're living longer and we're healthier for longer, and that's surely good news. So I couldn't work out how we managed to spin this into bad news at an aggregate level when it was good news at an individual level. And you know, the more I looked around, the more I could see people were doing things differently. People were sort of actually not more old people, but in a way, people were behaving younger. And you know, one of the examples I always give when the average age of the Rolling Stones is about six years older than the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, kind of something different is happening、uh, in society. Then I looked also at my children who are in their early twenties, and they were doing things very differently from from me. So、uh, I spoke to my colleague Linda Grattan, who's a psychologist here at London Business School, and I said, "You know, I, I think we're missing a trick here. People have got this wrong." And she said, "Yeah, I think also companies aren't really understanding what's happening." So we said, "Well, let's write this book." So that's how we wrote the book called "The Hundred Year Life." And really, I, I guess the simplest—you know—you asked me to explain the multi-stage life purpose. Most people think that as we're living longer, this is all about what we do at the end of life. But actually, that's to misunderstand that the key thing is that, on average, every generation is living about a decade longer than the previous. So every generation's got more time, and so we need to think about what to do with that time. And just as the 20th century invented new stages of life, we invented teenagers and pensioners in the 20th century.、Um, so we're seeing new stages of life emerge now as people deal with these longer lives. And the three-stage life that emerged in the 20th century of education, work. Followed by retirement, doesn't work very well if you stretch it out to a hundred. And the UK government says one in three children born today will live to be a hundred. So we can't stretch out that three-stage life. You know, if you start work at twenty and you're living to a hundred, you're probably going to finish working at eighty. That's a sixty-year career. 
And that seems a pretty remorselessly long slog. You know, what can you learn at 20 that's still relevant in your 70s? You probably won't be fit and healthy if you have a 60-year career. And what with technology coming along, there's probably not a job you can do. So we see that that second stage is going to break up into lots of different stages. There'll be several stages to your career. One may look like what it does now. It's about making money. Uh, one may be uh, a better work-life balance. One may be doing something entrepreneurial or doing something to society. And you will rotate across these different stages as we move away from that three-stage life that became canonical in the 20th century. Andrew, thanks for that. So that was a great uh, way to uh, uh, move into the next question. So you mentioned that uh, longevity on the individual, as a, I mean, for an individual is, an, is a good thing. It's an opportunity. And at the aggregate level, it's often viewed as a threat. Um, so whichever way we look at it, what do you think are the key aspects that business businesses that uh, that the businesses should focus on to make sure uh, they're serving the real needs of the consumers? Because if consumers are going to live longer, what are the factors they have to take ration? It's a great question. I mean, you know, businesses are, I think, behind on this. Individuals are already living their life very differently. Businesses are behind the, uh, the curve. And... I think they're behind the curve in two ways. Businesses have got to employ people and they produce things for consumers. And I think lots of firms still don't understand that actually being 50 or 60 now is relatively quite young and lots of people want to carry on working. So it's about how you support workers uh, in the workplace. On the consumer side, I think they've got this really wrong. I think there's a number of reasons for that. Um, so often I hear talk about a, you know, a silver tsunami of, or the grey dollar and how there's this huge purchasing power coming with this rising number of people aged over 65, which is true. But I think you know, too easily firms then fall into age stereotypes. So the first one I often hear when I hear talk about silver tsunami is a fact that apparently in Japan they sell more adult diapers than baby diapers which I think, again, is to misunderstand what is really happening. That's to say, oh, we've got these longer lives, there's more people at the end of life. But really, most of the years of life that we've gained in the 20th century haven't come at the end of life, they've come at the end of middle age. And so I think firms need to wake up and understand that actually people are younger and healthier for longer. So kind of 70s and new 60, 60s and new 50 and all that sort of stuff. So they need to get more nuanced about age. So the first thing is that actually 70-year-olds are probably quite fit and active. And they're not what the stereotype of many firms think. Um, the second challenge, of course, is that as we're moving towards this multi-stage life, people are doing things differently. And in particular, in retirement, you can almost see three stages emerging in retirement. One is people are still working. Secondly, they're fit and healthy and they want to do stuff, so travel, etc. And then the third one, which looks a bit more like a traditional end of life, where you know, life can be hard and one feels fragile. But firms are kind of haven't got onto this. So I think, you know, they haven't understood that we're ageing better. So they have a misplaced sense of what people want. Secondly, they often don't have enough nuance around this. They tend to, I was talking to someone the other day who runs a large UK retail company. And they've got their data passed so that, you know, data on consumers 10 to 15, 16 to 20, then it's 65 plus. And that's just a ridiculously broad range of people. 65 plus is going to have enormously different interests depending on whether you're 90 or you're 70, and then actually depending upon whether you're fit at 90 or not fit at 90. 
And all that tends to get lost by firms who just think of them as being old. And I think the other challenge that firms have got is knowing how to sell to this group because no one ever buys something because it's for old people. So then finding a way of trying to sell things that are about health is a more positive way of doing it. But actually, I think the real challenge firms have got is that ultimately what is happening is more and more people are getting aged over 65. There's massive diversity in that group in terms of health, what people want and what people like. And firms don't quite understand that. And so a lot of the stuff that they're selling to everyone else sells well to that group. A lot of what people sell to that group sells well to other groups. So I think the real thing firms have to do is rather than necessarily target special things at that group, you just have a greater awareness that actually, guess what? People aged over 65, they're just people. They have all sorts of different interests and they're not that dissimilar to people under 65. I think I might just need to quote you on that um, in future. One of the things I always talk about is aging is not homogeneous, right? Just like what you say, people that are 55 plus, 65 plus from a business perspective, they just tend to lump them all into one group. Say, here you go, old people. So, the, thing, so- the thing that's really happened, which is, you know, in the 20th century, we discovered that age is malleable, that there are actions we can take that make us age better. But of course, What's interesting about that is what you said, that leads to great diversity because, first of all, some people are unlucky, genetically or environmentally, um, but also not everyone takes those actions. So you see this huge diversity in how people age. And I think it's only now that we're going to see millions more people aged over 65 that will start to begin to understand that diversity. Absolutely agree. So you touched on something that... um, is something that we, we talk quite a bit about. You wrote in the book that the simple truth is that if you live for longer, then you need more money. This means either saving more or working for longer. And so in the financial services industry that, that we work, um, what do you think they can do to help people adjust? Because typically when I, when I talk to startups or when I talk to banks, oftentimes they say, well, you know, we're not interested in no people because they're all, either running after millennials, or they say, oh, we don't really have any retirement product. What about annuity, right? They, they just yeah. jump straight to the old definition of what it means to be quote-unquote old. Yeah. So, I, I, so it's a great question, and I think this is a huge agenda. So there's so many different ways to tackle it. So first of all, you know, there's this, if you're living for longer, you either have to save more or work more. Um, a, a large number of pension institutions I talk to assume the natural solutions to save more uh, which is kind of uh, you can see why they would think that because they want more funds under management and also the, it tends to be the case that people who work in the financial sector you know they're good at numbers and they think well we'll just save more um, but most people um, they're not saving enough anyway and given the increase in life expectancy they're not going to save enough so actually I think it's almost impossible given our savings habits to hope that we can solve this problem by saving more therefore you're working for longer and I think that's then kind of where we get into that multi-stage life that I was referring to. Now, I think what's interesting about the pension industry is, of course, it emerged in the 20th century because the three-stage life emerged. The very meaning of the word pension has changed its sense in the 20th century. A pension used to be a sum of money that the king or queen used to give in perpetuity to whoever they liked. But in the 20th century, it became something you got in retirement. And so therefore, a key part of stage two was 
earning the money to transfer into stage three of life. So if we have a multi-stage life, then obviously that has huge implications for the pension industry. And I think it also means that you replace that second stage with several stages to your career. And that means that as an individual, you're going to be thinking about a much broader range of assets than just your financial assets. So one of the things we talk about in the book is a portfolio of assets that includes financial, but also includes your productive assets, your skills and knowledge, uh, your health and fitness and your relationships, and your ability to deal with change. And over a longer career, you're going to have to be investing in all of those. So actually, I now need to think about not just shifting financial assets from stage two to stage three, but how am I building up my skills at this stage for the future? How am I building up my health? How am I building up my relationships? And of course, if I'm going to have to need a major increase in my skills, I'm going to need money. So I may be drawing down some money age 40 or 50 to pay for a boost in my education. I may need a year off in between jobs just to recuperate or get contact with my family again, for which I will need money. So you're going to see financial flows go up and down much more over the course of your life, rather than just try to build them up remorselessly for a pension. And then I think the other really interesting thing is that so many pension funds still think that there's a concept of retirement uh, and a hard stop to work at age 65. And for some, there still is, but for many, there's not. And they're going to carry on working. And of course, that has huge issues for your portfolio, because if I'm still working, I may have a different risk appetite in my 60s, 70s and 80s, because I've still got money to earn. I, you know, I can still um, take a bit more risk in my investments. Um, I think there's also going to be a whole bunch of new risks around. So although on average, we're living longer and we're healthier for longer, there is a new risk in town, which is I live to 100, but I'll be incapacitated at 50. So we need to think a little bit about what are the financial products that provide me insurance for that. And then finally, I think, you know, it's hard to save for this longer life. But of course, the longer life means compound interest has a much stronger role to play. So I think if you are going to try and hit, I wouldn't say the millennials because they're getting quite old now. Uh, but the even younger generation than that, they've now got so many more years for compound interest to kick in. So saving small amounts early on in life could really be a very powerful long-run um, financial accumulation technique. But I guess to capital, basically, I think the pension industry is now going to be morphing into something more like long-term wealth management, where it's not about just pushing money to that final stage of life. It's about thinking about my whole life course and running up and down my assets and drawing them at different times. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. Uh, Andrew, that was a that was a great point because um, I was actually going to ask something around that, which is now that we're saying that we're going to live a hundred year life. So we have uh, listeners who would look at, okay, what am I going to do about my education? How long am I going to kind of keep myself educated? Is it until 2021 or into 30 years? Because I can work for longer. 
So, and you also mentioned about the different assets that uh, people could build through their careers. So, which means education is going to be paramount, um, not just the first 20 years of someone's uh, life, but throughout the career as well. So what are the kind of um, uh, advice that you would give for people planning for a hundred year life rather than a 60, 65, 70 years life, which has been more traditional? Yeah. And and obviously, you know, I'm 53, so I probably sadly can't plan for a hundred year life because, you know, uh, perhaps my grandchildren probably can. And certainly my kids can probably think about a 95 year old life or something. Um, So let's go back to the real simple basics. Because we're on average living longer, healthier for longer, um, kind of that means at every point in time, we've got more time than our parents' generation ahead of us. So we need to be more forward-looking. We need to think more about investing in our future. And as you said, I think the key part of that is particularly in the 40s and 50s, thinking, wow, I've probably got another 20, 30 years to go. I mean, in the book, we we credit a character called Jimmy, who's in the mid-40s, and we point out that probably given their life expectancy, they've got more years of work to come than they've had already. And whenever I say that to a group in the room, you can feel the groan go around. Um, you know, they've still probably got 30 years of working career to go. And how are you going to prepare for that? And some of that is about education. You may need to massively upgrade your skills. But I think it's also it's more than just education. It's about, you know, do I want to carry on doing the same thing for the next 30 years? So it's about looking forward recognizing the power of investment um, in, and not just in money. I mean, in education and relationships and health. And um, i said earlier that age is malleable. Uh, I mean, another thing I, I always think about is the recursivity of life. What you do now impacts what happens in the next decade. And that sounds trivial, but actually that's going to be all the more important in influencing how, how, how you age. So being forward looking. And um, the other thing is, not following the stereotypes that your parents did or your grandparents, which of course, you know, perhaps we don't need much encouragement to do that, but, but social norms are important and social norms kind of answer difficult questions. But if you're living about 10 years longer than your parents or 20 years longer than your grandparents, you really need to have different social norms. So actually it's about experimenting and just doing things differently. Um, that's dangerous because, you know, you may do a wrong experiment or you may be a pioneer in the wrong direction. So you also need to look around and say, hold on a minute, what are others doing that I like the look of? But this really is a time to experiment because we've never had to live a hundred years life and we don't know how to do it. So people are you know, doing things differently. We already know, you know people are now getting married at age 31, on average, not 21. They're having kids at that age rather than early 20s. Um, we're seeing people working in their 70s much more than they used to. We're seeing divorce rates rising for people aged over 80. So we're already seeing lots of sort of innovations. But I say that's the, to me, look around, see what others are doing, and try not to follow the social norms. And then one final bit of um, uh, success, and perhaps we'll talk about this later, ageism is a real challenge. We tend to measure um, age by how many candles on the birthday cake, how old we are. But really the point of what I'm talking about is that actually biologically we're aging more slowly. But we still tend to think about people being old on the basis of chronology. You're 65, you're old. And we apply that to other people than ourselves, but also sometimes I think we apply it to ourselves. So don't 
self-limit yourself by thinking, I'm this age, I have to do this thing. We're all beginning to do things differently at different ages. So making sure you don't follow sort of those age labels yourself is very important. I cannot agree more. I'm 46, and I think I broke every single social norm. My Fantastic. mom helped me to, because I didn't get married until mid-30s, which she was like, oh my goodness, and I didn't have my kid until late 30s. Like, okay, that's really old from my uh, biology perspective. And um, I am now in my mid-40s, and I'm starting my own company, which you know, my, my mother <laughs> sat down with me a couple of weeks ago, and she said, honey, don't you think you're too old to be doing this right now? <laughs> mm, no, I think I'll be working for another 20, 30 years. So, yeah. and, and, and that's the whole thing, right? Like, like what you were saying, it resonates is keep reinventing, keep pushing the boundaries because you have a ton of time left. And, and right now where we are the, from a networking perspective, there's so much more that we can do so much more. We can keep learning. And just don't don't get stopped because of how many candles you have on the cake, like you said. Yeah, yeah. And so you're acting <laughs> as a social pioneer, which is brilliant. And you know, the point you've made, which is absolutely you know key, is that we've got all these years of life. You don't just want to use them all at the end of life. You want to spread them across your life, and that's what you've been doing. Yeah, um, I love it. Like I said, you influenced me uh, okay. so much in the last few years. I, I can't, I can't even say. That's lovely to hear. Thank you. <laughs> So uh, going back at a point that you were talking about ageism, right? And I think that's something that we do see quite a bit in banking, for example, financial services. The um, unspoken truth is that if you are a woman in your late 40s, getting close to 50, another check, that's it. You are deemed unhirable, so to speak. So (laughs) what what do you think some of these main challenges that that we have as we, you know, adjust to living multi-stage life and can we actually go around and resolving them? No. And, and you know, there's, there's good and bad news here. So the good news is if you look at the data, there's been just a massive increase in the number of people working aged over 55 and, and over 65. I was playing around this morning with some of the numbers and looking at the US, Germany, Japan and the UK. And over the last 20 years, there's been a big increase in employment across all those countries. And if you look at where the employment's come from, of it has come from people aged over 65 and 60% from people aged 55 to 64. So something's already happening. More and more people aged over 55 are staying in work. So, you know, it's not all bleak. However, um, you are certainly, as you hit 55 and onwards, vulnerable to losing your job. Uh, They tend to be the the workers who lose their jobs the first time, um, the first row of job cuts when times get hard. And there's plenty of data that shows if you put your age on a CV, then you are much disadvantaged when you're trying to get re-employed aged 55 plus. So loads of challenges there. I think some companies are beginning to do something about that. And as we see immigration probably decline, as we see lower birth rates, we're going to see firms say, wow, how do I, where do I get workers from? And they start to look at these older cohorts in a different way. Um, But there are deep-seated prejudices and restrictions that will limit their ability to do that. So, of course, what you're seeing is quite a lot of people aged over 55 having the shock of losing their job when they thought they wouldn't and they'd be financially secure. You're also seeing a lot of people working in what's called the contingent sector. So 
you know, we always think of the gig economy as someone with a sort of a beard and a bike cycling around the streets of London or Brooklyn or somewhere, but the typical contingent job worker is actually over 55. Um, and they're kind of doing that because they can't get full-time employment. They do consulting, they set something up themselves. Um, so we are seeing a lot of growth in that area, which is an inevitable way, I think, of dealing with a situation where firms are ageist in their assumptions. But we are seeing some progress. I think you're seeing firms um, at retirement trying to, so you're seeing this in Japan, offer workers a number of different packages, some more flexible than uh, full-time work. Uh, you're seeing investment in manufacturing that uses robotics to try and help older workers still maintain their productivity. So you are seeing some improvements. Um, so yeah, I don't think I don't think we need to be completely negative, but clearly this is one of the big issues that we have to tackle. Um, I think as the workforce gets older, um, firms will be forced to tackle this more, but it's a slow process. I think one thing that you, you touched upon on the contingent worker, that's definitely, you know, even in the U.S., I see more and more older people that are driving Uber and Lyft because, like you mentioned, they can't find regular jobs. And, and so there's an underemployment yeah. right, challenge that we have, but also from back to financial services the way that we earn a living is very different compared to how we used to be. So there is massive challenge, but opportunity to rethink how we plan to create our nest, if you will. And the mindset change that has to happen is, is, is so true because uh, I've, I've, I mean, my wife, she, she's 38 and she's been looking for a job for quite some time and she's coming out of maternity and she's had such a challenging time yeah. to find a job because she's 38 she's not 20 28 um there's, a, there's another friend of mine who's who's been advised he's 43 he's looking for a job and he's been advised to take up a few few years and few uh, years of work ex of office cv and then he got a job and wow. it's 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 so true that you mentioned and and, and the industry really needs to kind of uh, start changing i mean it's, the, the culture has to move on from that um so um andrew coming back to you now um you've got this bestseller um what what are your future plans how do you plan to inspire us more um so I, i'm sort of doing a number of things at the moment one is obviously more longevity and looking at uh, how society adapts i'm trying to get the economic world to understand this a little bit more um but there's plenty to be done and i'm uh, both academically and through a number of initiatives trying to raise awareness um, not just amongst individuals, but amongst companies and governments. It's interesting seeing the response the book has had. It's obviously been very successful. And whilst I'd hope that's because it's a you know, brilliantly written, interesting book, I think it's probably more because the time has come for this to be a very live issue. So people are increasingly aware of it. So I think now it's about getting companies and governments aware of it and getting those who don't really care about the issue to go, oh, wow, yeah, this is important. We have to do something. So I, I'm um, co-founded a charity called the Longevity Forum, where I, I'm working on trying to raise a profile and talking to various governments about it. And then I am just in the process of finishing the next book, again with Linda, um, which we're looking at longevity, how it interacts with technology, and also changing social relationships, because clearly our world is changing profoundly. And I see we're, we're sort of equivalent to what we saw with the Industrial Revolution, a new technology, new lifestyles new ways in which families and societies uh, congregate. And so the question is, how do we prepare ourselves as individuals? 
and what do we want from firms, governments, and the educational sector? So that's the next book, which hopefully will be out in early 2020, and I'll get a chance to talk to you about it then. Wow, we, I, I can't wait. Um, it, it's it's uh, definitely something that resonates with us, you know, the, the intersection of longevity and technology. There's much that we can do with tech, um, that, that we can hopefully change the narrative in the society, but also to help us age better. And I think, you know, the, the theme of the book is, and it's a bit like, you know, the hundred year life, there's a lot of negative press around technology and longevity. You know, we can't afford to grow old. Machines are going to take all our jobs. Machines are going to enslave us as humans. But if human ingenuity can make us live longer and create this fantastic technology, we can clearly say, well, what do we want as humans from longevity and technology? How do we make our life better and improve the life of being a human, harnessing these great tools? And that's very much the spirit of the next book. And and the answer, I think, is just being more human will help us get there, Yeah, which is what is lacking today. It is. And, And then I think less fear as well. And just saying, well, what do we actually need? How do we make this an opportunity? And the change, I'm sure, will be hard and difficult, but it should be for an improvement rather than anything else. That is very inspiring. Thank you so much again, Andrew, for joining us today. And for our listeners who would like to hear more about inclusion, technology, and innovation, join us at the upcoming Money 2020 Europe that will be held in Amsterdam, June 3rd through 5th, and I will be there. So thank you so much again. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Bye then. 